Hi, I'm John Stevens. This is Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. Well, hey, Mark Boom, President CEO of Houston Methodist. Thanks for joining us. It's been a while. A lot has happened. But let's start. Why don't we just start? You just tell us how you're doing, you and your family. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Um, uh, 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 you know, juggling the usual two careers, kid, three kids, um, you know, uh, two of whom are living at home right now, one of whom uh, really shouldn't be, but uh, is, is kind of uh, still the way school is, uh, which is medical school and now uh, School of Public Health for her. It's it's mostly virtual, and so it's better for her to be with us than alone in an apartment someplace. So that's been nice. That's good. I was talking with someone you know, before we get into all the fun COVID stuff, I was talking with someone uh, who's on the board at Houston Methodist, and they were telling me a little bit about, I thought this might be something right in your wheelhouse. I didn't put it on the questions I sent you, but he was telling me about this population health initiative thing that's going on that Houston Methodist is a part of that's in some kind of a test or a study. Is that something you can kind of give some clarity? It sounded like a really cool partnership or is that top secret and we're not supposed to talk about it uh yeah if i tell you yeah no it's um, i think what you there's a couple of things that could be uh, referencing but i think he's talking about uh uh houston Methodist continuing care this is a, a medicare share savings project that we do so uh the 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 short version of it is basically a, a system where medicare assigns through their primary care physicians, um, probably about 40,000 Medicare enrollees in the city. And we actually work with Medicare to try and improve the quality of care for those individuals, but also to be cost effective um, at a population level, as opposed to, a, you know, I need a knee, replace a knee. This is more thinking about longitudinally, how do we keep people he- healthy and well and out of the hospitals? Um, so, you know, lots of work around chronic disease management, um, you know, uh, working at home whenever possible, uh, you know, appropriate care settings before and after. So it ends up being a real benefit um, to everybody, um, to the mm-hmm. Medicare enrollee, uh, you know, who frankly, um, the way they structure it probably isn't even aware they're in this program um, uh, and uh, to Medicare and to Houston Methodist as well. So it works out in our doctors. It works out um, uh, fairly well. I think that's what he's. No, I think that's right. Cause it had to do with it. Well, the reason I said population health had to do with the health of the overall <clears throat> population and trying to do a better job of, in the thinking about talking about COVID, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of people that are affected by it really badly are people with comorbidities or yeah. just poor population health. And so it sounded like there was some kind of a thing that's that's targeting a broader spectrum of just treating, like I have an issue, I come and I get treated, but a much broader health initiative to try right. to... Yeah, if, if, if you look at healthcare in, in, you know, historically it's very episodic, right? So. Um, you know, you get sick, you come to the hospital, you get sick, you go to the doctor. And we're really trying to structure things much more to move towards a lot more preventive wellness care and longitudinal lifelong care. Um, and it just so happens it's a lot better quality when you can do that. And, be, and, and, you know, the goal becomes keep people away from the hospital as best as you can. The goal becomes, you know, keeping, uh, you know, for example, somebody with brittle heart failure who might Uh, you know, get admitted 12 times a year if you don't put a lot of structure and programs around them. With something like this, you can actually put a structure around that. Maybe you can keep them out of the hospital nine out of 12 times. Well, that's one heck of a lot better for the patient 
it's one heck of a lot better um, uh, care for them and ultimately outcomes for them. But it ultimately, is, of course, much more affordable, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, the reality is a lot of that takes very intensive partnership between, you know, the health program, whomever the payer is, in this case, Medicare, and the individuals um, to really put a lot of uh, monitoring in place, a lot of home care in place, um, you know, a lot of the futures, um, you know, wearables and, and, and other things like that. I mean, the, the heart failure example, a lot of people will decompensate because, you know, they, uh, you know, they may go off their diet and they're a very brittle heart failure patient and, you know, a, a nurse visiting them or, um, you know, a early intervention when we see that when they get on their scale in the morning, which is connected to the doctor's office, that they're up a pound and a half and probably gaining fluids rapidly, you know, that you can quickly have a nurse call. So you end up having structures in place where you're watching a population like that and where, you know, uh, physicians, nurses, teams are um, looking at how to keep those people healthy. And mm. it's, a, it's a pretty exciting thing. So we've done a lot of great work with that with our Houston Methodist uh, coordinated care. And yeah, you'll see much more of this happen. Um, our market in Houston, there's not nearly as much of that happening from a private payer, you know, from a United Healthcare Blue Cross kind of realm as many markets, but you're going to see a, a lot of move that direction in the next few years. I, the only thing I could think of is a, a scale that you weigh yourself that immediately talks to someone else. I'm thinking that that's going to be a tough sell right there. <laughs> it's, I, I'm, I'm going to get in well, it. It's going to go shame. You like to shout out on the weekends. Not yeah. such a good thing. But but in heart failure, for example, if you gain weight rapidly, you're not gaining weight because you you know you you ate a, a couple of big meals. You're gaining weight because you're gaining fluid. Right. That's the whole re fluid retention issue. As an example, in heart failure. But there's a whole lot of very exciting things we're we're, we're focused on with our center for innovation. You know that you can you can imagine right. Uh, and and we're we, we right now do a virtual ICU where a lot of the monitoring of our patients kind of supplemental monitoring it's not replacing what's there it's enhancing what's there is done remotely across our system by somebody who has you know all of the data and who can literally spot a patient who's going downhill much more quickly than a nurse who might be popping in and out of the room periodically does because they've got all the you know there's algorithms there's uh you know they're sitting in front of monitors with all these different things um and they can literally uh, you know, uh, video wise, be in that room assisting a nurse so the nurse can hit a button on the wall. They're there assessing. It's really exciting. And you're going to see things like that happen in the inpatient setting. Um, you know, the difference between an ICU right now, you're hooked up to every, you know, every monitor and every kind of wire known to humankind, right? I mean, on the regular floor, if you're recovering from surgery or something, mm -hmm. you might have a monitor, you know, that's got, you know, a heart rhythm monitor or something, but we're going to, we're not we're not far from very inexpensive wearables that are going to on, you know, ongoing do your EKG or, you know, obviously temperature, blood pressure, a number of other things like that. And so it, the next extension of that is how would you monitor an elder patient who's fragile, um, who, you know, might end up uh, frequently in the hospital in their last few years of life and keep them out of the hospital and happy and healthy with their family. And a lot of that's going to come down to how are we engaging with them in the home, thinking on a different basis than reactively when people come to us. But a lot of that's going to require a lot of neat technology. And so we're, we're very actively working on many of this. Yeah, the technology is going to be an important part of that. I remember when I first started in ministry, it was still, you know, when I go visit somebody in the hospital, they still had like their, their chart was at the foot of the bed in the little 
holder on a and clipboard. So you could just like <laughs> pick it up and like scroll through. I there was did no a lot of that in my early days. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. There was no HIPAA, and there was no like you could just scroll through. Oh, let's see what the doctor said about you. Uh, yeah, we don't we don't do that anymore. I remember working at the VA as a medical student and the first job of the medical student was to, you know, basically find every nook and cranny where some other doctor might have hid the the films that you needed to review that morning, you know, because it's all on, you know, on celluloid film that you're going and running around and of course paper charts and everything else. They, all of that has changed. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful advances of technology, a lot of challenges around technology, but um, you know, where we are today is is tremendously different. I, when we talk about a pandemic, I can't imagine having gone through <clears throat> this pandemic 20 years ago with the technology we had then or 30 years ago when I was in med school. It would have been a very different experience um, than we ended up having this time. Well, speaking of the pandemic, uh, it's been a while since we visited with you, and I think we've gone through Delta and Omicron, and well, good news is it looks like things are, are trending down as it relates to that, but why don't you just give us an update of kind of how you see the big picture on this pandemic, and are we now in endemic? Are we entering that, or what does that even mean? I have no idea. Sure. You know, we're we're you know, we're in Houston, you know, we've had five major surges. The first turned out to be the baby, uh, which was, uh, you know, that first uh, when none of us knew or understood anything and this thing was coming at us and we're seeing all the horrible images out of New York and, and, and Italy, you know, that ended up being um, for Houston, not that big a surge, but we've subsequently had four very, very large surges. And interestingly, and this will be a question, you know, for us later, is we've seen two of them happen in the summer when we're indoors, cold, you know, our cold weather, which is air conditioning, you know, and uh, it's been interesting to see that. And so we led kind of the country in the South uh, this summer with Delta, and then really Delta came through in the fall. And by the time we were starting to talk about Omicron, things were pretty good here in Houston while things weren't so good in the upper Midwest and some other places from a Delta standpoint. So that's, it, it hammers home that message that while the world may have a pandemic overall, it's really a summation of lots of local epidemics, right? That may be different times in different places. Um, Omicron, you know, we, 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 we first heard about it, you know, right around Thanksgiving weekend, right? Most, most people I think were waking up the day after Thanksgiving going, Oh crap! You know, um, here, here I had this nice holiday, and now the next day uh, they're telling me something's coming. And we were a few days before that, obviously in healthcare, but not long before because it, you know, it went so fast. And obviously, we saw how rapidly something can spread worldwide if it's infectious enough. Um, and things shot up. Um, and fortunately, we're on the backside of that. We're big time on the side of that, which is, you know, really, really good news. Um, from an infections perspective it sort of rewrote the rules. Um, you know, unfortunately it was a variant that is uh, highly, highly infectious, probably the only, you know, virus we really know of that's more infectious than Omicron is measles. Um, and it's not probably quite at measles levels, but it's approaching it, but you're talking probably five to six times as infectious as the original uh, China variant that came out. I mean, the, the one that was in China uh, and in Wuhan originally. Um, and then, of course, you know, we had a, a series. I mean, really what hit the U.S. ended up already being a mutated strain. And then what we saw that summer was another mutated strain. And then, of course, mm. Alpha and Delta and, 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 and now Omicron. Um, as you came through that and each time it's picked up different characteristics. So Delta was already 
probably triple as infectious as that original one that, that emerged in Wuhan. Um, and then now this, which is far more infectious than that. Now, thankfully, and I mean, I, I can't I can't overemphasize the thankfully, it turned out to be milder because if it was as severe as what we originally saw and that infectious, I mean, we it would have been absolute mess. And so we saw, you know, record numbers of, of, of positive tests, record numbers of people getting sick, but a much lower proportion getting sick enough to need the hospitals. Um, so it's amazing the way it's worked out this way, but, you know, the last three surges last well really last four you know the summer of 2020 last winter summer of 2021 and now now this one you know plus or minus 15 20 percent they've all sort of peaked in around the same realm from a people in hospital standpoint Mm -hmm. um once in hospital we didn't see dramatic differences in outcomes versus previous ones but far fewer people were, were were getting admitted um to put that in perspective, you know, we measure, we collectively, it's it's the, the city does this with Rice and Baylor. They look at wastewater, um, you know, for how much virus is in, in the wastewater. What are you pooping and peeing out in terms of, of virus? Um, I don't want that job. I was going to say. Two reasons. It's really great imagery there, I know. But, but <laughs> Thanks, you know, Mark. really two reasons those numbers go up or down. It's the number of people who are infected or the amount of virus somebody is shedding, right? So with Omicron, way more people got infected really quickly, but you also probably had really high viral loads. So if I took, you know, person A and infected them with Delta, they had, you know, X virus getting shed. And if I gave them Omicron, they had two or three or four X virus being shed. So there was a combination of that. And what the city did was say, okay, on July 6th, 2020, so this was that you know, the second surge, but the first really, really big one. And that was the peak day of that really, really big one. They said, this will be our benchmark day. How much (laughs) virus do we find in the wastewater? And they call that 100%. And in Delta, we got, you know, it's a three, 400%, something like that. And by end of November, we were like 75%. So we had less virus in the water than during that peak um, at that point in time. Well, the day, the 27th of December, it peaked at about 1,800%. So in other words, there was 18 times as much virus collectively in the wastewater as there had been during that other surge. So just massive amounts. And it correlated directly with what we saw at the hospital. That day after the Christmas weekend, um, we uh, diagnosed, uh, our peak day ever had been 550 tests. We did about 1,200, 1200 positive tests that day. Wow. So had we had what we used to have, which was 40% of people getting admitted, we would have admitted 450, 500 patients to the hospital that day. Now, remember, our peak census was 850 to 900, and people stay for average of, let's say, six days. So that would have been like having 2,500, 3,000 people in the hospital if you kind of had that for a few days in a row. And thankfully, because it was milder, fewer people got admitted. What we saw after that was that uh, probably the younger, kind of more mobile crowd got infected first. And then as the infections were coming down, the hospitalization numbers were not coming down. In fact, they were even coming up. And it was because we saw older, more vulnerable people getting infected. The people who were a little more careful, this was everywhere. I mean, I'm sure you experienced it in that couple of weeks. It was it was everywhere. But the good news with Omicron that we saw in South Africa, we saw in the UK, and that we've seen really worldwide and we're seeing US-wide, is from an infection standpoint, it has a very sharp peak and came back down very quickly. Um, the hospitalizations are lagging, but nonetheless, they're down very significantly. And so that wastewater, which peaked at 1,800%, was 167% uh, 
Uh, it's always a week in, in arrears. So, um, you know, that was reported yesterday for the previous Monday. Um, and so, you know, while it's not back down to zero would be normal, but it's not back down to kind of pre-Omicron levels, it's, it's starting to approach that. And so I think we're going to see the next three, four weeks, things continue to get a lot better. And you'll see the hospitalizations are following. And by by March, I think we're going to be in really good shape. And we're kind of going to be in that sort of, uh, you know, one of my key messages would be we're going to be in the sort of seize the moment timing. I don't know where things are going to go. I don't know if there'll be another surge, but we need to be, you know, seizing the moment when we can. And we need to be pivoting when we see warning signs like the day after Thanksgiving, realizing Omicron's two weeks away and changing behaviors and changing protection then uh, and kind of pivoting back and forth if we have to. So that's a long-winded answer to, no, to your great. question, but that's kind of where, where things are today. Yeah, one of the um, <clears throat> one of the things that's interesting, and I, I, one of the things I sense, like a big thing, and I've gotten this from a lot of people, they want to know about natural immunity. They want to know how many times can you get COVID. There are a lot of people I run into who say, well, I've had COVID, I won't get it again. But then I've met someone who's had it three times. So and and there and I when we talked, um, I think it's been at least a year, maybe more, about natural immunity. At that time, you made the statement that you know you can do a lot of scientific like case studies, testing, or or whatever you call it on vaccination, but you can't really do the same kind of research or studies on natural immunity. But is that happening more now, or do we, you know, what what is natural immunity mean? Uh, how does it work? Now, the, the good news is there's all, I mean, a couple of comments. There's a, there's a whole lot of data out there now, which is, which is good news. You know, I'd say for the better part of a year, and I think that rule of thumb still largely holds true. What we've often said in town halls that we do, and our chief scientific uh, uh, officer, our chief academic officer, often has said is, you know, kind of a lot of the data supports the fact, no question, let's go to vaccines first, that, you know, probably, you know, clearly one dose is not enough. We knew that from the beginning. Two doses are necessary. I think with the benefit of, you know, perfect hindsight, you know, probably those doses needed to be, would have preferably been spaced out a little wider. Um, but that really, it's probably the third shot that is sealing the deal, so to speak, whether that permanently seals the deal, that's not what I'm saying. But it certainly gets people to really significant levels. And I'll come back to some, some data on that in a second. And what he and I would talk about often on our town halls is that, you know, think of each of those times you get a shot, that's your body seeing the antigen. An antigen is an, uh, an, something that shouldn't be there that your body reacts to uh, and makes antibodies. Um, when you get COVID, that's exactly what happens, right? So if you get COVID, your body's now seeing a foreign substance, an antigen is making antibodies. So roughly we would look at the data and rough rule of thumb, you know, getting COVID was sort of like getting a shot um, on a rough rule of thumb. So um, was it as durable? Probably not. Um, you know, um, if you looked at people who had two shots and then COVID, were they more protected most likely than somebody who just had the two shots? Absolutely, yes. You know, and so we still think that's a pretty good rough rule of thumb. Now, Omicron, as I said, sort of re rewrote some of the rules. We clearly saw that if you go back a year, and you were looking at the alpha variant and you know keep in mind that the uh, the uh, vaccinations were formulated against the, the the genetic sequence from the originally isolated 
virus that was in Wuhan. So already what mainly hit Italy and the U.S. and then the rest of the world was already another variant. And then what really hit us in the summer was another variant. And then you're talking about alpha by the time we were dealing with the winter. Um, and, uh, and, and so, um, fortunately those vaccines still work even as all of that's changed and then later delta and omicron but omicron showed itself able to evade immunity very significantly we think there's a couple reasons for that well um you know one of which is clearly people's antibody levels wane over time they go down over time whether you're you know naturally acquired infection and you had oh you had uh COVID or whether you were vaccinated we know those go down if i give you a vaccine or an infection to anything and it'll just depend on what what uh, disease it is but antibodies always go down because you'll mount a response and then there's sort of you know there's an acute kind of antibody that comes up and then there's a little longer term antibody that comes up and then two other things happen you have at least two but i'll uh, to simplify you have some b cells um you know those are what make antibodies you have some memory B cells. So they remember, aha, I've seen this. And so if they see it again, they're like little factories and they'll pump out a bunch of antibodies. But those antibodies are not there every moment of every day. And I'll come back to that in a second. And then there's T cells, which are really your long-term, what we call cellular immunity, um, which are, are part of the whole immunity as well. We know both of those are there. And for most things stick around for a long period of time. But now with an Omicron, which is highly infectious it's in huge quantities when you're near somebody with it and it has a particular propensity to bind very strongly to upper respiratory tissue much much more strongly than the other variants did the good news is it probably has a lower propensity to bind to your lungs which is what makes you really sick right it's the people who get pneumonia generally who then really really get sick which is probably part of why it's been milder well, to prevent that huge bolus of infection, you need a lot of circulating antibodies and you probably also need some antibodies on your surface membranes in your upper respiratory tract, which are generally only there in the early days after being sick or in the early days, you know, when I say early days, first couple of months after being vaccinated. So it's not a huge surprise. And what ultimately that was disappointing is, whereas the vaccines were highly effective at preventing almost all infections originally a year ago, now we were waking up saying, okay, they're not preventing infections. I mean, they, they prevent a lot of infections, but they don't uniformly do so. But what we saw, even with two-dosed people, so people who just had the routine, you know, the, the, the fully vaccinated series, markedly diminished risk of death, even if they got infected, markedly diminished risk of being in the hospital, which is, of course, at the end of the day, what we care most about. And then what we saw was you get when you give people a booster, you can bump up the antibody levels. So for some period of time, you're less likely to get infected, whether that'll continue or not. We don't fully know, but I'm going to guess no. Um, but you can really boost those levels of protection against what really matters, which is hospitalization and death. So right now, the most recent data says if you take an unvaccinated individual and you compare them to an individual who's had two doses of a mRNA vaccine, you're probably about 20 times as likely to die. If you take a boosted individual versus that unvaccinated individual, um, I, there are numbers anywhere from 58 I've seen recently to as high as 90. So probably a four to five times uh, less likely to die even than the people people are double vaccinated. So that's why we urge boosters so much. 
we don't fully understand every iteration of the, I had COVID first and then I got a couple of shots or I got one shot, then I got COVID and then I got a second shot or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? There's a million permutations of that. Um, when you think of it on a population basis, and this is how we think of it from a hospital uh, standpoint and from our employee standpoint, at a population level, we want to drive this away. And so at a population level, whether you've had COVID, whether you haven't had COVID, wherever you are in all those permutations, given that the booster shots and the, the original vaccines are so amazingly safe, we don't see a downside to taking it for the vast, vast majority of people, even you know what, no matter what that scenario is. So we require boosters now across our hospital system to keep our employees safe, but most importantly, to keep our patients safe. Um, so uh, hopefully that, that gives you a little bit of information. Again, my rough rule of thumb for people <laughs> is, uh, you know, think of it as a dose. And your goal is to get at least three doses if you want to be the highest level of, of uh, protected. Personally, I can I, I, I have not had COVID, um, uh, but had I had COVID, I'd still have three doses of vaccine in me. No question. Um, uh, and I do have three doses of vaccine in me. Um, and I still recommend that to my own personal patients, um, you know, in terms of getting that, because the only sort of controlled, measurable, we fully understand kind of what it does or close to fully understand what it does way of getting somebody antibodies is through uh, a vaccine. And because they are so incredibly safe, the other and that brings me to the other point which is one of the challenges with the you know quote unquote natural immunity or having had had a version of covid and then making antibodies if you have a mild illness you know you tested positive but had minor sniffles or you tested positive and didn't even know you were sick we're not convinced you're mounting as big an antibody response by any stretch as if you were really sick with COVID. Um, and so it's hard to understand, is there a standardized level? How do you do that, et cetera? And so, you know, again, my recommendation is that people be fully vaccinated and then when it's their time, um, get that booster because it is protecting people. And so I guess that's why it's hard to like point to a study or anything on natural immunity because there's just, you can't control the variables, I guess. I, I read somewhere about some study where they were actually <clears throat> giving people COVID. Huh. And I don't remember if that was in England or somewhere for young adults. I think it, I think it was UK with one of the, I, th I think it might be Oxford, but don't quote me on that. They, they actually did, um, you know, younger, healthier volunteers with challenge studies, which, you know, happens um, sometimes with, with infectious diseases. You know, the, the other thread I'll hear sometimes is, well, I should just go get it, right? You know, um, and I still don't recommend that. I mean, you know, um, first off, get vaccinated. Um, and, and second off, we just don't fully understand all the ramifications of having COVID. We see long COVID. Um, yeah. You don't want long COVID. It's no fun. Um, and um, we see much less long COVID if people have been vaccinated um, than people, uh, even if they get COVID then, you know, obviously, uh, mm. uh, than people who, um, you know, have never been vaccinated and get, get COVID and sometimes have that. And you don't want to have that. So. My mom sent me to my friends down the street when I was little to get chicken pox. We had huh. that guy at a chicken pox party. That's that how, was done commonly. We, um, it we didn't really know what in the hell shudder. we were doing. I, she didn't know what the hell she was doing, but that's how I got that's chicken how, pox. Really? Oh, yeah. It well, was like a plenty, big thing. There's plenty, of, there's plenty of parents who, you know, have four kids and, you know, in the old days, would they'd have one kid with chicken pox and they made sure the other three got it because they didn't want to deal with it four more times. <laughs> but, you know, and, and it made the pediatrician shudder because the pediatricians see the rare child who gets a bad, you know, varicella pneumonia, chickenpox pneumonia, and gets incredibly ill, right? So even that, 
Um, nowadays, of course, we give chickenpox as part of the vaccination series so we can avoid that. But most certainly, I, I don't ever think that's a great idea with any infectious disease. It's a little bit of playing roulette, you know, with with uh, the outcomes. I mean, you know, obviously, uh, overwhelmingly, people will be fine and have a mild illness, but there's going to be the exception that nobody wants to be. Well, I'm from South Georgia. We just slap some mud on it and you <laughs> run back outside going. and you play. I mean, that's how you, you, you didn't clean up the wound. You just kept going. Hey, listen, shifting gears, you've said a lot, and I, I think you've done a wonderful job, and I know there, there's going to be yeah. people that disagree with me on this. Some people don't like me, how I've handled things in the last two years, and I'm sure you've got some that love you and think you've done great, and others that don't think that. That's welcome to the club. But when I think about how well you've done to try to stay yeah. as apolitical as possible and really focusing on healthcare as a leader in the hospital, I think it's been really remarkable. Do you think or do you feel or sense that there is, are we in a good place with coordinating between government and health care? It just seems like that's been a rocky road for how the interplay hmm. goes on. Yeah, that's that's a great question. You know, one, so, you know, we had a number of guiding principles throughout this and we've done our very best to adhere to them. One of those is, you know, stay political and data driven. Now, you know, let me be clear, once the political realm evolved to the point where you know you could sometimes tell what party somebody was with by whether they chose to wear a mask or what you know those kinds of things by definition when we would follow the data somebody would think we were being political so you know some not everybody would agree we weren't but you know, i can tell you we've followed the science every step of the way and as a healthcare institution our sacred obligation is to keep people safe and keep the community safe and so we've done that every step of the way and so i i'm proud of what we've done uh with that you know my philosophy from a uh elected official standpoint if you want to get into kind of the politics side of things that you're asking you know we would work with any elected official anywhere if we could help them help the community or if they could help us help the community and so you know i i, I get countless people from both sides of the aisle, you know, and, and the whole spectrum on either end of the aisle, you know, did we work with? And of course, you know, for the first year, I worked with a lot of people who were, you know, red uh, from the federal level. And in the next year, I've worked with a lot of people who are blue from the federal level, just because that's where the obviously the the the, the federal government was, um, you know, locally, I worked with the county judge, I worked with the mayor and many other people. And then, of course, at the statewide level, worked with the governor and, you know, um, agreed with all of those people a lot of the time and disagreed with all of those people at other times, you know, I mean, just and uh, at, at times, quite frankly, would have one conversation with one yelling at me for one end of the spectrum and another conversation with one of them yelling at me for this exact opposite end of the spectrum, you know, literally in, in the course of three hours. So unfortunately, you know, things did get uh, and are still very political. I think one of the things we have struggled with as a country is that our public health infrastructure was woefully uh, inadequate um, at every level. Um, so, you know, CDC to city to county to state, etc. And let me be clear, I'm not throwing stones at a lot of good people that I've worked with. What I'm saying is we didn't have the infrastructure at any one of those levels, the investments at any one of those levels, the tools, the, you know, the, the, the surveillance activities, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, when I talk to other hospital systems around the country, we all feel this way. We've stepped in and done a lot of that work with them and for them as partners. I mean, I, I have the utmost of respect for all of those those individuals. It's just they were under-resourced. And when you start thinking about 
what the collective institutions of the Texas Medical Center could bring to bear, yeah. you know, um, when you have under-resourced of any one of those levels of government, it was pretty significant. So the good news is I think we've partnered very well and you've seen a lot of collaboration there. And at the end of the day, every one of those people ultimately wants the same thing, right? Nobody wants people to suffer. Nobody wants people to die. Nobody wants the economy to go south. Nobody wants our kids not to get educated. There's just the had obviously dramatic differences in opinion on, on on how things would be approached and unfortunately got very politicized. You know, one of the things I've talked about all along for, for us was what we saw as the sake, I called it the sacred and our sacred responsibility. And the and is we have to care for patients with COVID, patients without COVID and protect our physicians and nurses and, and other personnel. You know, and I would turn that back around and say the political and is that you need to protect, you know, basically, you know, uh, manage COVID and kind of minimize the, 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 the death and suffering from COVID, but you got to protect the economy and you got to educate our children. And unfortunately, what we've seen is sort of the irresistible urge in the political environment to, to not go to and, but to go to or, um, right? Once, once if you're in politics and you carve out your spot, it's real clear where you are, who you are, and then you can, uh, you know, start lobbing bombs at the other side. And you know, that's the antithesis of what we need during a crisis. It's the antithesis of what we need during a, a pandemic. What we need is, you know, bipartisanship. We need, you know, people, um, you know, uh, working together, ironing out differences and then coming to consensus. And that's been, frankly, one of the biggest uh, areas of challenge that we've we've definitely had to face. Yeah, there was a study, <clears throat> not a recent study. Of who do people trust on this thing? And what I find fascinating, and it really says a lot about Houston Methodist or lo it's like your local, like employers were real big. They trust their, they trust their employer, which is interesting, but lo your local healthcare, not the CDC, no. the CDC okay. actually was because I think it's tied in the CDC got tied into the politics, but local healthcare, the local hospitals, your employer way higher than the president or um, other things like that, depending on which president it was. So I think that means, you know, nowadays people are listening so to you. They're listening to the TMC. And I think that that's a big responsibility for you all to know that people are listening and they're looking to you, mm -hmm. um, you know, for guidance on this. And they, and they, and they pay attention, may not feel like that because sometimes we only hear from the ones that don't like us, but yeah, and, I, and I think one of the biggest take homes from that was, you know, from all those studies, I mean, a couple like that, um, is is that trust in the employer, right? It's the environment you go to, you work day in, day out, which is, a, I think, a, a heartwarming thing, right? I mean, that people sure. tend to like where they work and they trust the people they work with and they trust the people and the institutions that they work for. So for, for a long time, we've been saying, you know, ultimately, employers have to be a big part of the solution, right? If If we have to figure out how to, um, you know, hit the sacred end of, you know, let's control COVID and, and, and minimize suffering and death. Let's control our, and, and optimize our economy and let's get our kids educated. You know, at least the first two, if not all three, really, you know, are, are very majorly the responsibilities of employers. And so where employers had at, you know, a, a multitude of tools to encourage, uh, you know, careful behavior, to encourage vaccinations, which work, um, et cetera. We've encouraged them to do that in, you know, in, in any realm of different ways from educational programs, town halls, to encouragement, to incentives, to disincentives, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and many, many employers, since I, I would say most employers have stepped up and done that. And that's, uh, you know, a very good thing for us. Mm -hmm.
That's great. Mm-hmm. Matt, you just got to jump in. I got these questions just going through. So the big thing now is <clears> – you can just push me out of the way. No, no, go for it. Uh-oh. Big thing now, conversation – it, it it's like anything uh, vac- the vaccines became controversial and and political and but uh now they're they're getting ready to or they have approved at least for emergency use children under five um you know people have concerns about vaccinations in children they talk about and a lot of it i don't i mean infertility myocarditis all these sorts of things but as it relates to what you've seen with the children in vaccines uh, speak to that a little bit, the studies and sure. stuff that's been out there. Uh, you know, what we've seen with, with the COVID vaccines is, you know, pretty standard for any new medical medication, drug, you know, uh, vaccine, et cetera, is, you know, t- some are obviously developed specifically for kids for an issue that only happens to kids, but most things start in the adult world and then move into the pediatric world over time. So what you've seen is a very Standard, standard approach, um, which is, you know, they started with a large population, you know, 16 and up or 18 and up, and then have marched down into other populations. Um, you know, that is uh, smart medicine. It's smart science, right? Because, you know, we want to see if something works, look at the safety, look at the effectiveness, you know, and starting with adults makes sense for a whole multitude of reasons. In the case of COVID, that's where the most death um, was occurring. Obviously, you're talking you know, 200 pound people, not, you know, 10 pound people, um, you know, and so there's a bigger and broader safety window as you look at things. And so this is very standard. And so what we first saw was the 12 to 16s, and then we saw the five to 11s. And now, as you're alluding to, you're seeing, you know, a, a bunch of the under five. So step back and ask about, because um, all of this is ultimately going to be a risk benefit ratio, right? At the individual level, and then the societal level as well. Um, when you look at kids, and I'm going to use that broadly, you know, 18 and under, um, who gets really, really sick from COVID? Well, first off, uh, far fewer than a bunch of 80-year-olds, right? We know that, thankfully, um, unlike the Spanish flu where, you know, it was uh, 18, 19, 20-year-olds who were, who were getting most devastated, uh, you know, 100 years ago. Obviously, we'd be having very different conversations had COVID uh, reflected itself like that. Um, so when you look at that age, when you look at kids, the, the, there's, it's kind of a, a bimodal peak. So the kids who have died tend to be teens and, you know, you'll see risk factors for that. Obesity is probably the strongest risk factor outside of obviously a kid who's being treated for cancer or has some immunocompromised, but you'll see kind of that, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds, a, a fair size peak, nothing like 80 year olds, but compared to the five to 11 year olds, much lower. And then you'll see a bunch of one-year-olds and, and two-year-olds. I mean, you'll see the youngest end. So you have that kind of bimodal peak. The other thing you see that's really bad in kids is you see the MISC, which is the multi-inflammatory system you know, disease that they have, which if your kid gets that, thanks to places like Texas Children's other great pediatric hospitals, they'll probably pull them through. But it's going to be weeks and weeks of severe, severe illness, intubated, dialysis, you know, your, your gut failing. I mean, all sorts of things. And mainly because I think, I mean, honestly, if you gave that illness to an 80-year-old, they die. But, you know, kids are resilient and they pull them through. But that's life-changing and devastating for families. Well, a lot of that's in that kind of 5 to 11-year-old age group. So there's another reason in that group. 
But the other key reason is that, remember, very few people have only children, right? But there's a lot of eight-year-olds who have one-year-old brothers and sisters or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, from an individual perspective, you can look at that kind of, uh, you know, benefit profile, but you also have to think about family health and then school health and population health. What's happened is these vaccines have proven to be amazingly safe as you look at kids. In the... Um, mRNA vaccines, which is really what we're using now, the two, uh, Moderna and Pfizer, we've seen, and you alluded to this, some myocarditis. Um, myocarditis is an inflammation of the heart, of the muscle of the heart. Um, a lot of people who get COVID get that, and far, far more people with COVID get that than with COVID vaccine, but I'll come back to that. But, but a lot of other viruses that run out there may give people of any age, you know, that there's a, there's a list that long that causes that. Fortunately, it's been incredibly mild, um, you know, the, 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 and, it's, and it's mainly occurred in sort of late teens and 20s um, young men, uh, much greater male than female. And we've not seen nearly as much in younger children. We've also seen it probably highest on the second dose and much lower on the third dose in all of the studies that are out there. But the incidence of it is far, far less than the incidence would be if your child gets COVID. And so, um, you know, at the end of the day, the American Academy of Pediatrics strongly urged and strongly recommended COVID vaccination. And each time you've marched down that age band, they're strongly urging that parents um, do so and get their kids vaccinated. And you'll see the same thing from them on the under five uh, age group as, as, as you look at that. Um, uh, my youngest is 16. She was 15 at the time uh, vaccines came out. So she wasn't eligible for quite a while. Um, so we enrolled her in a trial and she actually got Moderna in March of 2021 um, and uh, did both. It, and it turned out she, she, you know, she was in a double blind trial, but, uh, but she, got, she got the actual uh, vaccine. And later we got her a Pfizer booster after she was 16 and qualified for that. So she's been triple vaccinated. I can tell you, it, I mean, and my wife's a pediatrician, I think, you know, um, if I had a two-year-old, three-year-old, and they were releasing the vaccine, I'd be first in line. Um, we'd be getting them vaccinated. I can tell you, you know, obviously, um, uh, obviously, if I had a seven-year-old or whatever, we'd have done that long ago. When we opened up that at Houston Methodist, in other words, you know, the approval went uh, and came out, um, the first people in line were all our doctors with their kids. So, you know, they're, they're voting with their feet and, and, mm -hmm. and leading by example of, of the right thing to do. So we would urge people um, to go ahead and get those kids vaccinated. And keep in mind, it's amazingly safe for the kids. They don't live in a vacuum. They live with their brother, their sister, who might be higher risk. They live with mom and dad. They visit with grandpa and grandma, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, keep that in mind. The other thing I'll say is, a series of pretty remarkable studies out there. You can look at families of two, three, four, five, six, and every time an additional person in the family gets vaccinated, it protects. I mean, the, the, the probability of somebody in the whole family getting sick goes down dramatically. So when mom and dad got vaccinated, but the kids couldn't get vaccinated yet, those kids were already getting protected more than a kid whose mom and dad didn't get vaccinated. When mom and dad and the 17-year-old got vaccinated or 15-year-old, let's use that example, and there was a eight, six, and five-year-old at, at home, the study will show that those eight, six, and five were actually already now incrementally protected. And so, you know, we, we strongly recommend that uh, whole families do go out and get themselves protected. 
I want to be faithful to your time, too, because you're always so good to come and be with us. And uh, so I want to wrap this up uh, with, you know, by three. But uh, I, two, more, two more things, really. One is, I think, the, the one that gets me is, like, what, what concerns you the most now as we move forward? Are we in a, I mean, I think about the word endemic or pattern. You mentioned a little bit about um, seizing these little moments, but when you look at what looks ahead in your crystal ball, no one will hold you to this, but what do you see? Uh, what, it, what makes you really like excited, but what, what also concerns you as you kind of look into the crystal ball in the future? Yeah. And you know, if, if, uh, COVID has taught us all one thing, it's humility. It's taught us all, be careful with what you predict, you know, and, uh, you know, so, um, uh, but, but I'll tell you, you know, I think what we, we have, you know, fair degree of certainty, short term, a lot of uncertainty, obviously over the longer term. Um, there's a lot of chatter out there about, you know, is Omicron it? And anybody who tells you Omicron is it is, you know, by definition wrong or potentially wrong. And anybody who tell you, tells you Omicron isn't it is by definition wrong, um, you know, or potentially wrong because none of us truly know the answer to that. What we do know is a couple of things. One is, you know, we've seen this have patterns. Um, one of those patterns, and I alluded to that before, has been in the warmer climates. It seems to have shown up in the summer when we're air conditioning. Uh, in the colder climates, it seems to be, you know, showing up in the fall, and then everybody's getting hit in the winter when it's cold for everybody, and we're indoors, right? Um, we've seen much less in sort of the, the shoulder seasons for us when you know we're all outdoors a ton because it's not so hot or it's not so cold. Um, so, is there a seasonality we can predict? Will we see? another surge this summer maybe will we see winter surges i would say probably um we'll see some sort of periodicity for some period of time much as we see a, a cold or a flu we're very hopeful that you know what we see is that kind of periodicity but without massive spikes we do know that we have a lot of immunity out there now right i mean Two thirds of the population in Texas has gotten vaccinated. Unfortunately, we can't seem to convince the other third to do so. And we've only got about a third of the population has been boosted. And so we need to get those folks boosted. And, you know, to be, to be blunt, I'm kind of giving up trying to convince the people who haven't gotten vaccinated at all, although that's the biggest, best thing we could do. But I, you know, I'm still working hard on the people who got vaccinated before and get boosted. Um, but, you know, the biggest impact we could have societally is get the people unvaccinated vaccinated. But the reality is at some point, if you've not gotten vaccinated and now to some extent, if you have gotten vaccinated, lots of people have had COVID somewhere along the way. Right. So there's a lot of immunity out there. How durable it is, how effective it is, you know, still a lot of question marks. So. I think we are, you know, rapidly entering a very good period. Um, I think we have the quite significant possibility of having this spring be far better than this fall was from a COVID risk standpoint. We had a window there, if you remember, kind of mm -hmm. May into mid-June last year, where it was really good, really good. Thought it was and then, over. Of course, Delta came around, um, and yeah, everybody did, and, and then Delta, and Delta taught us that hey, this thing's going to mutate. As long as we have, you know hundreds of millions probably in the billions of people around the world that are susceptible unvaccinated um you know you're gonna see variants emerge now so far the variants have mostly emerged uh, that the ones that have gained hold because they have a strategic advantage 
have been more infectious and thankfully they've been at worst kind of even and now with omicron probably better from a you know individual risk standpoint again thank goodness or it'd be really different there's no guarantee that that is the case if there's another variant the you know the strategic advantage could be a variant that's actually less infectious but it completely avoids every sort of you know antibody that's out there whether you got it from having covid or whether you got it from a vaccine so I think we can't predict that right now. I think we need to assume that for a significant foreseeable future, we're going to be living with COVID. Mm. How big the surges are, how frequent the surges are, I have no idea. I don't think anybody truly knows. Kind of my fundamental message with that is let's seize the moment while it's good. That doesn't mean throw all caution to the wind and don't use any common sense. Use some common sense with that especially if it's there. I mean, if we're down to like no COVID for a while, okay, fine, but we're not, we've never gotten to that. But we need to figure out how to pivot more quickly when it does come back, right? We, Omicron, we knew. I mean, in fact, obviously we, you know, it, it was Thanksgiving weekend. We saw our first, and we, we sequence every single genome. We've done like 70 something thousand. We saw our first case a week, less than a week later in Houston. And, you know, two weeks after that, it was 95% of the cases here. There was a moment in time there where we could have all said, okay, we're going to have to start acting a little differently. And we could have attenuated this rise and obviously saved some lives and preserved hospital capacity and some other things like that. So, you know, that would be one, uh, you know, key message. The, the other thing, that I'm very hopeful and prayerful for is we have a couple of really good treatments out there, especially a drug called Paxlovid, which is, you know, in, in trials basically cuts hospitalizations by 90% and thereby, you know, death by at least 90%. That's a game changer if you can get that to everybody who gets a severe infection. Right. And it works totally differently than any antibodies that, you know, whether they're uh, derived from vaccines or derived from infection. Um, uh, and there's every reason to believe that at least the, for the foreseeable future, any variants would still be susceptible to that. Um, it's not to say at some point, like with antibiotic resistance, you couldn't have something that, that develops some ability, but it kind of works in some of the replication machinery in the cell, um, uh, you know, for the virus to, to replicate itself. And so it's a really good drug. The problem is you can't get it. Um, you know, now you can start to get it as the volume of people is coming down. If we can get that pushed out, I mean, I've said a couple of times we quoted saying we kind of needed the operation warp speed for the antivirals um, because we need it so readily available that if we see, you know, the whatever you call it, the next variant and it's blowing up that we have tons available and every physician yeah. can prescribe right away when people get sick, um, it could change the game. So, so I the difference is unlike a, unlike a vaccine, this is like 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 I get a flu vaccine, but if I got diagnosed, they'd give you like a, what's the the viral, the antivirus they give you yeah, for it's, flu? Yeah, it's, it's, it's like Tamiflu. Tamiflu, it's yeah. The, so this is like the pill version right? antiviral drug. Exactly. That's That would be great. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. And so, so it's there. I mean, it exists. It's being prescribed. There's another one as well, but you know, as long as this, if, 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 if that was the only drug, we'd be saying, okay, pretty good. This is just far more effective. And I think um, the, the other one has some reasons we don't love its safety profile. If it's the only thing left in certain situations, you'd use it, but it's not the first drug we'd reach for. This one's a great drug. Its downside is that um, 
Uh, it does have some drug, you know, as a physician, we're always thinking about drug-drug interactions, right? If I put you on a new drug, it's got a long list of potential drug-drug interactions. So some of the sickest people who may need it the most are on 18 drugs. And sure enough, when you run their drug list, you know, you find one or two that you're like, ah, you can't use these together. So that's it's, which is a significant downside. Um, but for many, many people, it's going to be the Tamiflu that you reference, um, you know, in the future. And so I'm cautiously optimistic with all of that. But look, if anybody tells you they know for sure where things are going, uh, they can't. I mean, there's just there's just no way to know that. I am hopeful and prayerful that, you know, it's going to be hard to outcompete an Omicron that is almost as infectious as the most infectious virus we really know, which is measles. Um, but we don't know that for sure. Um, and so, you know, we'll just have to see as we saw, you know, there's a sort of sister to Omicron, you know, Omicron's BA1, this is BA2. Um, you've probably seen some press about that in uh, it's a little bit in South Africa. Denmark's been hit very hard with that. UK's got some seems to have, you know, a 10 or 15 percent uh, edge over Omicron. So we may still see that. It doesn't look like it would cause a big new surge. It probably would just slow down the decline that we've got is what most people think. But it does show that this thing's constantly mutating and it can always get, you know, find something new. Um, so we need to keep getting the world vaccinated. Um, obviously, when it runs through and a lot of people got Omicron, they're probably less likely um, to get infected and, you know, harbor harbor a virus over time. Um, we don't know exactly where, I mean, Omicron was a huge mutation. Like I think it was 35 base pairs basically on the on there that got changed, um, uh, at least something like that. Um, and uh, that's not an easy thing to happen. So probably the leading hypothesis for that and probably why it was in South Africa or could have been in anywhere in Sub-Saharan Africa, which is HIV and a lot of people who are chronically immunocompromised. So if you're chronically immunocompromised, you may not clear the virus. In other words, you get it. Maybe it's held at bay, but it sort of lives in your body for months and instead of clearing it like people who aren't immunocompromised. And that just gives it lots of chance to mutate and accumulate mutations, accumulate mutations. And then eventually, you know, a mutation happens. That's a strategic advantage for it. And it, it infects somebody else and blows out. That's probably what happened with Omicron. We don't know that for sure. There's some other uh, uh, hypotheses around that. You know, could it have been what's called a reverse zoonosis where it goes from man or human into animal and animal back to human? That's possible. But the leading hypothesis is probably immunocompromised. So, so it's good that you bring up um, other countries. We tend in America to like think about this COVID thing just about us because, you know, it's mm -hmm. always about me. I mean, that's the, the world revolves around me. <laughs> and us but i think you know we have some uh united methodists here and united methodists that'll listen to this and Global. we're supposed to have this international global general conference in august they're going to make this decision in less than two weeks i think um yeah but one of the limitations is not only are these delegates many of them not vaccinated getting a visa to travel into other countries has been a real big issue too um but i think about not only do you think you can have an international conference at that time or who knows, but thinking about how we get the rest of the world um, either mm -hmm. vaccinated or what needs to happen so that these, I mean, like when you look at Africa, it's very few people have been vaccinated, but it hasn't had a huge like breakout like when you saw Italy or Germany or some of these other countries yet. I don't really understand all that. The South Africa thing makes sense, but 
Um, I was going to just kind of ask you, do you think we're going to have general conference? Uh, that was really the question. <laughs> or should yeah, we? that's a complicated question. I mean, to the Africa one, there's a few possibilities. One is, remember, it is a very, very young population um, compared, if you look at especially sub-Saharan Africa versus the United States, Europe, Japan, um, and, you know, of course, huh. severe infections mainly been in older people. So that may be some of what we're seeing. South Africa was about 35% vaccinated when it got hit with Omicron. I mean, if you look at South Africa and if you maybe imputed that some of the surrounding countries, you're going to have a majority of people will have some immunity now, <clears throat> a lot of it, you know, from being infected, um, you know, and then you look at uh, many other countries and, you know, um, there's been access, but not, but not, <clears throat> I don't know the for you. Um, you know, we have, you know, again, that kind of combination of seize the moment and coexist with this virus, right? I mean, have I traveled? Yes, I've traveled out of the country during, you know, during COVID over the last uh, six, eight months. I'm careful. Um, uh, you know, I wouldn't go right at the middle of a peak, um, but there are ways to do that. But I'm triple vaccinated, right? So I know when I'm going there, I'm less likely to bring it with me, but I'm also less likely to be at risk of anything <laughs> severe. Um, you've got to think about people who have not been vaccinated, their risk, um, what they can bring with them, but at, more importantly, really their risk. Um, and that's a complicated, obviously complicated issue. I knew you weren't um, going to answer that question. I don't blame you. I wouldn't answer it either. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen most any days about anything, but especially that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. hey, I always appreciate you coming on and catching us up. But hey, uh, uh, we are, Stacy Alt um, sent us out. I know some of the churches, and we are officially adopting the emergency uh, division. I think it's the emergency division down there to bring them goodies and snacks and cards and goodwill and wishes. We really appreciate all yeah. the, the work they do. And I think that's a great idea for uh, local churches to adopt ERs and uh, emergency divisions, mm -hmm. especially the frontline workers. We want to just let them know how much we appreciate them. I, I love that idea. It's been, you know, I mean, yet again, hard. Um, this, this one was different in that it was hard. Uh, I don't know, the summer was really, really hard because we saw so much suffering and death and people who should have been vaccinated, could have been vaccinated. Yeah. It was that missed opportunity as a healthcare provider who's sort of sworn to protect people. You know, it just was really difficult. Omicron was hard because it blew through everybody. And, you know, we basically had staffing shortages at, at the same time as we had, uh, you know, um, uh, overwhelming numbers of people coming into the hospital um, with Omicron. So, it, you know, and it's just that kind of, really again, you know, kind of thing. And again, the second holiday season in a row for our people that they were, you know, hitting peak times. And it's, that's, that's been a hard thing. So uh, all those things you can do to pray for them, to, to boost their morale, uh, to do nice things for them, um, you know, richly uh, appreciated. Because what happens post COVID or post these surges is things tend to get really, really, really busy because, you know, all the deferred care and other things that happen. And so they, they kind of don't get a real uh, time to catch their breath. And so yeah. it is much appreciated. Well, we appreciate you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. And have a great day. You too. They don't pay him enough money. No. I don't know what they pay him. It's, it's not probably enough. a lot. I think he gets paid a lot of money, but it's not It's not enough. enough. Yeah, maybe they can give him a pay raise in terms of paid out on vacation, just not being around after this thing is over for a while. Yeah, they just need to buy that dude a house in, like, Cabo. Yeah. Well, what did you learn? I'm sorry, I just kind of blew through there to get the questions in. Cause, no, you know, no, no, that's good. Like, that's good. We, I mean, Thanks I, for participating in the sure, podcast I'm just today. Here to, Glad you could come. It's eye candy. 
right. <laughs> you know, I, it's interesting uh, the the natural immunity stuff because that was one of the questions I was I have in terms of that kind of as we move towards whatever that herd immunity is. But just seeing that like like the vaccination, triple boost, all those. If we could, that stuff is that stuff still works. You know, it's still the the efficacy of it. The uh, you know, it's still there. So. I feel like people are getting a little better about all of it. I mean, we kind of lost our minds for a season. Yeah. All over the map. I mean, yeah. no matter where you were on the spectrum. Fear does that We too. just kind of lost our minds. But yeah. I, I see, it feels like, to me, it's it's starting to get better. Yeah. Maybe it's just because <laughs> I'm spending time around good people. But that helps. I don't know. I mean, in all of it, the politics and the the covid and everything and yeah. you know i'm glad it's going down we got a good season weather's nice go outside yeah i think people are also like it's it's happening at a good place where people are both hungry to come and connect with other people and there's a little more kind of confidence we have that you know we can take care of ourselves admit it whatever that looks like for a person but we we don't have to isolate we don't have to move you know back from each other so that's that's encouraging mm. Anything we need to uh, promote, push? Hey, make sure you rate the podcast. Rate it good, though. Don't rate it bad. (laughs) (laughs) Make sure you like it and make sure you subscribe, whether it's on the YouTube channel. Wait, this camera? This camera? This camera? Whether it's on the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast app. Make sure you like, make sure you subscribe, make sure you share. Pod have mercy. I'm John Stevens. And I'm Matt Russell. And this is... Pod of mercy. mercy.